Well, if you got a Bible, open to Psalm 86 this morning. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to sit in the front and listen to God's people as they sang, as they prayed, as they gave thanks to God and confessed their dependence upon Him. And I just want to affirm you for lifting your voice this morning and acknowledging the fact that, yes, we indeed do need Him. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and you should have found one of these little cards on your seat whenever you came in. Uh, it's just a little connection card for us. If you wouldn't mind, if you would fill that out, a little information about yourself, you can drop it in one of the boxes on the kiosk in the back of the room or down the hall as well on your way out. Also, on the back side of that is a place for prayer requests. If there's something that we can be in prayer with you or for you about, uh, it would be our joy and pleasure to do so and to come alongside of you and help you carry those burdens and lift those to God whenever your hands get tired. And so if there's something we can pray about with you or for you, feel free to fill one of those out and drop it in those same boxes. Uh, Psalm 86 is where we're at this morning. We're kind of wrapping up a series called Worship and Wisdom as we've worked our way through some Psalms and Proverbs this summer. And so if you've got a copy of the text in front of you, we'll read it together. If not, it'll be on the screen. You can follow along there. Psalm 86 reads like this. this David, it's a prayer of his to God. It says, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Listen, every day you and I, we live in a world and in a culture and particularly in the world as it exists now in all of its sin and folly in which we're inhaling a reality. We've talked about this all through the course of the Psalms. We inhale reality oftentimes, uh, but what we need in the face of those realities that we're experiencing around us is to exhale theology. Right? Inhaling reality, exhaling theology. So all of our experiences that we have and face in this life, we need to speak truth into those things by exhaling the theology. And the Psalms are one of the places to go in those seasons in which we need to do a little exhaling. So that's what we've been doing over the course of the summer. But as you and I live in a fallen world, we daily inhale the reality of that fallen world that seeks to make God very small and very disconnected from our day-to-day -day lives. We, and what we need this morning is to exhale the theology of Psalm 86 together. 
because we live in that world where God is like, if you think about your life, like uh, the desktop of your computer. Most of us in the room have to interface with computers at some point during the day in order to get our job done. And so we're in front of a computer, and, and, and my computer, if you find me at the book club or at Starbucks or wherever you might find me hanging out during the day, my computer's probably going to be open as I'm working, and it's going to have all these windows on it, right? Uh, so it's going to have open the, the you know, my, my email account. It's going to have open Microsoft Word. It might have open Microsoft Excel. It might have open um, some Bible study software. It might have open, uh, you know, all, all kinds of uh, different windows that are just kind of cluttering the desktop of my computer screen. And whenever I get, when I'm not using one of those windows any longer, you can hit that little button up in the corner. It has a little minus on it. And what does it do? It minimizes it and kind of puts it out of your view for a moment in order that you can focus on other things that might be, need more of your attention at that time. And listen, if you think of your life like, the, the desk, like, like a desktop screen on your computer, um, oftentimes, many of us, um, the, the, the God we seek, uh, this culture in which we live, seeks to minimize God and put him down into the corner Monday through Saturday, and then Sunday we kind of bring him back up and put him front and center again, and we sing songs and we hear sermons or speeches, and we just kind of hang out um, on Sunday mornings, maybe with our life group on Tuesday evenings or Thursday evenings or Sunday evenings, and we kind of bring him back to the forefront and put him back on the desktop again. Whenever we're done with that, we minimize him and put him back down in the corner because everything else just kind of occupies our attention and occupies our time. The world in which we live seeks to make God very small and very disconnected from Monday afternoon and Friday evening. And yet what David does in this psalm is he exhales theology that says something quite to the contrary. Quite to the contrary. He says, what the greatest need of your heart is, and what the greatest need of my heart is, is for us to get a glimpse of a God who is so big, who is so glorious, who is so mighty, who is so magnificent, who is so uh, above and beyond high and holy, anything that you've ever experienced in this world, you need to get a glimpse of him and keep him at the forefront of your mind and keep him on the desktop of your life and not put him off into the corner. We need a glimpse of this kind of a God, a God who is majestic and mighty and magnificent, but yet whom you are able to have real relationship Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and yes, even on Sunday morning. So that when Sunday morning rolls around that we're gathering in a place like this to celebrate the things that we've seen God doing in our lives all week or the ways that we have depended upon God for our very breath and for our very life Monday through Saturday. So that Sunday becomes that point in which we gather as a church to celebrate and to petition God and to come before God together collectively to celebrate everything he's been doing individually in our lives all week long. See, our greatest need, the greatest need of your heart and of my heart is to get a glimpse of this God. A God who is so high and holy, so glorious and majestic, and yet he would bend low to come into relationship and engage you and I where we are day after day after day after day. But listen, right out of the block, some of you are going right now, listen, that's not, like I appreciate that, but that's not the greatest need in my life. <laughs> I really, I have other pressing things right now, right? There are other windows open on the desktop of my life that I need to give more attention to than getting a glimpse of this great God. 
because I don't see how getting a glimpse of this great God would connect to the realities of my life Monday through Saturday. But I want you to stop for a moment before we get into the text, and I just want to say this. If you get a glimpse of the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty and the glory and the mystery and the mightiness and the mercy and the highness and the holiness of God, it revolutionizes everything else in your life. If you get a picture of this big God, then everything else kind of becomes small in comparison. Listen, if you get a picture of this big God, then you stop telling people they're number one whenever they cut you off in traffic on Monday morning as you try and make your way to the office. That's what you're telling them, right? That's what I thought, anyway. If you get a picture of this big God, or this grand God, or this great God, then we wouldn't be so greedy and covetous all the time. We wouldn't get so angry at our kids at the drop of a hat. There'd be more patience in our lives. If we got a picture of this great, big, mighty, and majestic God, we wouldn't pout as much. And our skin wouldn't be so thin. We wouldn't be so offended as easily in our marriages. If we got a picture of this great God, we wouldn't worry about what we look like as much because our minds would be filled and fixated on him. If we got a picture of this great and glorious and grand God, then we wouldn't give in to our appetites and overeat in boredom and depression. If we got a picture of this great God, then we wouldn't dwell in such a deep bitterness and anger. Don't you see? You're like, well, that's what I really need is to get rid of my anger and my bitterness. Well, yes, you do, but how? What you need is a picture of a grand, glorious, majestic, and mighty God to consume your mind. And everything else recedes into the corner. And this is what we see spilling out on the page in Psalm 86 as David writes this prayer to God. Now we don't know exactly the time frame in which David writes, but based on verse 14 where David says this, he says, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life and they do not set you before them. Based on verse 14, lots of scholars look at that and they go, David's probably writing this either during the time or as he reflects back on the time in which he was running for his life from the king of Israel, whose name was Saul at that time. And what is, what, if you don't know the backstory, here's what's going on. Saul's kind of the incumbent king of Israel. He's ruling, he's reigning, he's on the throne. But God has anointed David as his successor. He would be the one who would take the throne in Israel. And David begins to have favor amongst all the people and influence with them. He has victories in battle. And he comes home and the people are chanting and singing his praises. David has slain this many in battle, yet Saul's only got a handful And so in Saul's heart, there's jealousy that begins to rise. And he begins to seek to take David's life. And he plots against him. So he ends up chasing David from city to city and cave to cave across Israel, trying to take David's life. And in the midst of this, or as David reflects back on it, he writes these words. Now listen, maybe you're sitting there and you're going, listen, man, I don't have someone chasing me from city to city and cave to cave right now. And if you do, there's probably only a handful of options about reasons why, right? Either you're in a gang and you just need to get jumped out of that thing, right? Or you're like a fugitive and you're on the run from the U.S. Marshals and they're trying to track you down. Uh, or uh, maybe you've got this like obsessive stalker who's coming after you. You just need to file a restraining order, right? So there's only a handful of reasons why you might be being chased from city to city and cave to cave right now. And, and so, so that's, you're probably not in those shoes, but listen... You and I, just like Saul, we have an enemy. We have an enemy. And that enemy wants to devour your faith. 
and he wants to destroy your life. And what you and I need as we push back against his advances is a picture of this great big God who is also, who's not only powerful, but he's also present. And so that's what we're gonna see in the text this morning. So take a look with me. In Psalm 86, beginning in verse eight, we're gonna jump down a little bit. David makes the statement about the might, majesty, grandeur, mystery, holiness, and highness of God. Whenever he writes in verse 8 these words, he says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And one of the things that you and I need to see about this great God in the midst of the enemy's advances, in the midst of wrestling with the realities of our life to try and minimize him and push him down into the corner and take him off of video and kind of put him on audio, right? You you ever tried to watch something and listen to something at the same, different things at the same time? You ever been there? Which one wins? The one you're watching, right? The one that's before your eyes, not just in your ears. And so all the world's trying to push him to audio and keep everything else on video, and what you and I need to see in the, in the midst of that is that there is none like him. There is none like him. He has no rival. He has no equal. He has no competitor. Right? We were watching the Olympics earlier um, this week. and We watched it as kind of it's unfolded over the course of these last um, you know, 10 days or so. And yesterday we were watching, um, my, 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 my son and I, we were sitting on the floor in our living room and we were watching uh, the, uh, the, the initial heats of the men's 100 meter dash. And so we're watching all the athletes warm up underneath and we're watching um, the, the heats as they run up on, up on top on the main track. And then they, you know, everybody's kind of waiting for the appearance of this superhero phenom called Usain Bolt. And he kind of rolls out of the locker room, starts stretching, jogging, limbering up down below. And then he makes his way up onto the track and the entire stadium erupts in applause because of what this man has accomplished as the fastest man in history. And he, sets, he gets down into the blocks and he kind of raises up whenever they say on your mark. And when the gun goes off, he comes out of the blocks. And he doesn't look very impressive at first, but then he just kind of blows away the field after about 50 meters and leaves everybody in his dust. And he just kind of finishes looking around and like, I got this. He didn't have any competitors in that field. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying about God is there's no one with whom he competes that he is high, that he is holy, that he is majestic. There is none like him, infinitely unique. I want you to think of the most unique thing that you can conceive of on the face of the earth. Maybe you think of your fingerprints and somebody's told you there is, there is, there's, there's, there's no one else who has the same fingerprints as yours. No one else with the same ridge detail and swirls that exist on the tips of your fingers. But listen, God is more unique than your fingerprints. Maybe you think of rock formations that exist in, in desert landscapes or mountainous regions of the earth. And you think about how amazing those rock formations are. But listen, all of those rock formations, while they are amazing to behold... There but one work of his mouth, the word of his mouth that he's brought into existence. He's infinitely unique and above those things. Maybe you think of all the endangered species on the face of the earth. There is only one God. He's infinitely unique and there is none like him. In fact, the song, David says this 
when he celebrates this bigness of God that there's none like him, he says, there's nor are there any whose works are like yours. And most scholars think that what David's referring to there is God's work of creation. That by the word of his mouth, he's brought all these things into existence. And so when you stand back for a moment and you think about the immensity, the bigness of God's creation, right? Some of you are in like sixth grade science class right now or 11th grade science class right now. You're entering into that in the fall and you're, you're going to begin to study the, the scope and the breadth of creation of all that God has brought into existence by a word that he spoke out of his mouth. Think about the earth upon which we live that revolves and orbits around the sun. The earth is a planet that revolves around the sun, which is a yellow dwarf star. A yellow dwarf star that is situated at the center of our solar system and whose gravitational pull keeps all the other planets, all our neighboring planets, in orbit. Think about the earth. It's situated in what astronomers call the, the Goldilocks zone. You know what that means? The place where it's not too hot and it's not too cold in order for life to exist. And God has situated it there by a word of his mouth and he holds it there in sustaining and holding everything together. When you look at the solar system in which we live, it's merely one of the solar systems within our larger galaxy. In fact, scientists have estimated that there are probably anywhere from 100 million to, or 100 billion to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. I know it's a broad number. But they've got a hard job. All right, so 100 billion to 400 billion in our galaxy alone. Our galaxy is somewhere between 100,000 and 120,000 light years across. That's a long way, all right? No matter how much charge your electric vehicle has in it or how many stopping stations to charge it up, you're not going to get across that thing in, in, in a million of your lifetimes. It's so massive and expansive. And if, it, and if just 0.1% of all the stars that exist in our galaxy also have solar systems around them, orbiting around them, then there's probably anywhere from 10 to 40 million other solar systems like the one in which we live in our galaxy alone. And the Milky Way galaxy situated on the, the, the landscape of the universe is merely but one of billions of galaxies. And when you stop for a moment and you think about the immensity, the bigness, of creation. And then you begin to think about all the species that live on this planet, on the, on the earth. And then in 2011, scientists estimated somewhere around 8.7 um, million species on the earth. And they're finding somewhere roughly in the neighborhood of around 15,000 new species every year and cataloging them and giving them scientific names. You think about the colors. You think about a God who has paints the sky every morning as the sea commands the sun to rise above the horizon and it casts that orange glow through the clouds or as it sets across the water every evening. You think about the beaches that dot the landscape of our globe and the mountains as they rise off the floor and the depths of the ocean and the 2.2 million species of Aquatic animals that live in the waters of the earth and all of their, arrayed in all of their color and variety. And that God, with the word of his mouth, said, Let there be. Do you ever just stop and think about the bigness, the immensity? the grandness 
of everything that God has made, and yet he is not contained by it. He is not contained by it. Even though he conceived it and created it, he's not contained by it. That's a a mind-blowing thought. And so when you read in Psalm 86, verse 8, that there is none like him, that he alone is God, that he was not dependent upon anyone else's counsel from the foundations of the world to bring all these things that we are exploring and experiencing into existence, that there is none like him. And so all we can do is step back and go, he is so big. He's so mighty. He's so majestic. So high. So holy and distinct. Blows my mind to think about the bigness of God. And that's where David finds himself in verses 8, 9, and 10. Thinking about the wondrous works of God's hands. There is none like him. And so we can see God's power on the pages of scripture and as we explore all that he has made. But perhaps even the most most mind-blowing thing about this text, it's not that God is powerful and big and can't be contained by all that he's created, but that he's present with it. That he's present with it. And that he has relationship with those that he has brought into existence. That's where David finds himself right now. So you see God's power, but I also want you to see God's presence. I want you to see God's presence in several ways. First of all, I want you to see it as a father who bends down to listen to the needs of his children. I remember as my kids, I got, uh, those of you who don't know, I have, I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. And I remember um, early on in their development in their lives as they kind of grew. Um, some of you are there right now where your kids like, don't have language to, to put to their, to their needs, right? And so they're standing at the refrigerator and they're just melting down, like slobbering in a pool of tears all over the floor. Why? Because they're hungry, <laughs> And they know food comes from the refrigerator. But they can't quite articulate that yet. They can't, they can't form the syllables to say that yet. Or they're, they're sitting in the middle of the living room floor and they're just rolling around. They can't get in a place where they're comfortable. Why? Because they've got a bunch of stuff smeared all over their backside and it's causing them to itch right now. And they can't tell you they have poop in the trunk back there, right? So they can't, they can't form those words and say those things to you. And I remember as they began to develop words and language, as they began to be able to put syllables together and say things to us, there were times, there were times in their, their feeble attempt to express their needs that I as a father had to get down on one knee and bend my ear in really, really close and listen. And listen for what they were trying to say. Listen for what they were crying out for. Listen for where they felt like they were at. And you know what David does in verse 1? He asks God to bend down. He says, incline your ear to me, 
O Lord, and answer. See, if we're going to have relationship with this high and holy, glorious and great, majestic and magnificent God, then he must bend down. Because you and I are about as capable of climbing up to where he is as a blindfolded six-month-old infant is capable of climbing to the top of Mount Everest. And so this God must bend down and put his ear close to listen to those whom he loves. And David calls on him to do so. God, would you incline? That word literally means turn toward. Turn your ear toward me. Bend down and get close, God. Here I, here's David is fleeing for his life from city to city and cave to cave. And he gets down on his knees before God and he says, God, would you come close, closer than I've ever known you before? Would you turn your ear and bend down to me so that even the faint whispers of me trying to communicate my need to you or even the loud shouts of me screaming toward the heavens that you would hear and that you would answer. See, David sees God as a father who is willing to bend his knee and put his ear very, very close. Do you see God that way? Do you see this great God who has conceived and created everything that you know, but is not contained by it? He's so big and so massive and so high and holy, and yet simultaneously he's willing to bend his ear down and listen to the cries of your heart. Is that how you see God? Is that how you engage God? Or do you think that God is so distant and so removed from you that he's too far to respond when all you can muster is a faint whisper? Do you think that God is too distinct from you like God's like, like a redneck in his 70s and you're like a hipster in their 20s. And there's just not a whole lot in common there. So God can't relate to where you are. Or do you see God as a father who's willing to bend low, bend down, get on the floor with his kid and listen to their needs and respond? How do you see God? See, if we're going to have relationship, if we're going to experience his presence, we've got to know that, yes, he is conceived and created, but not contained by everything that we see. But he's a God, a father, who loves and delights in those who are lowly. You read in, in Matthew's gospel in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed, the very first words off his mouth in that sermon are what? Blessed are the, some of you know it, the what? The poor in spirit. So if we're going to have a relationship with God, we've got to, life-changing relationship with God, we've got to see the immensity, the bigness of who he is, that he's powerful beyond all measure, but he's also present and willing to bend down. But second of all, you've got to see, you've got to see that you, and acknowledge, I'll say it this way, you've got to acknowledge your need and your neediness. And that's a problem for us. <laughs> Isn't it? That's a problem for us. Look at the text. What does David say? He says, God, would you incline your ear toward me and answer me 
and answer me, O Lord, for, and here's the reason, God, here's the basis of my petition. Here's why I'm coming to you, God, because I am poor and needy. I'm poor and needy, he says in verse one. In other words, David's saying, listen, I don't have any resources and I have a lot of needs. (laughs) I have a lot of needs, God. In fact, if I were to list all of my needs, I would write several volumes of journals. Some of you have the little moleskin journals that you kind of take notes in or write things down in. And listen, David says, if, if, if I were to try and fill those things up, God, I would, there would be a vast reservoir of books devoted to my needs. And I don't have the resources available to me in me in order to meet those needs, God. And so, God, would you answer, would you turn toward me and bend down? Because I need you. Because I'm poor and needy. It's like David saying, listen, I, don't, I can't make rent and I don't have a job. Like I don't have the resources to do it and I've got all these incredible needs in my life. But that's a problem for you and I. And here's why. Because in 21st century modern America, we are not fond of the idea of being needy. In fact, we put people in categories, at least in our minds, oftentimes, who are needy. And we try and avoid those kinds of individuals because they might require too much of me. They might ask me to go too far. The 17th time they call me at 2 a.m. and their life is in meltdown crisis. We're not fond of the idea of being needy because of the way that we think about people who, around us who are needy. See, the reality is that for most of us, what we want, what we, what we, kind of the way we view God and the way we view church, is kind of we see it through these lenses of, listen, I know, man, I, okay, I'm humble enough to know that I'm not a spiritual billionaire. But I also don't think at the same time that I'm spiritually bankrupt. I mean, I, I know I'm not up here, <laughs> but I, I don't think I'm way down here. In fact, I kind of think that I kind of think that if God were to need to bend down to get to me, that he probably has to bend down a little bit less to get to me than he does to, to, to these people. And yet David, who's the anointed king of Israel, he says, God, I'm, I'm destitute and I'm bankrupt. I have no resources of my own. I need you to answer And based on how big you are, I know you can. You ever find yourself in that place in life? You ever find yourself in a place where you feel like you've run through all of your resources? Like you've tried all of your tricks? All of your kind of life hacks, right? (laughs) Kind of all your little axioms, your little principles. I'm going to do this and then this and this is going to happen. And I'm going to go. You ever find yourself in that place where you finally are on your face before God And you're looking up to the heavens and you're saying, God, I know that you're huge. I know that you're big. I know that you're mighty. I know that you're massive. But God, I have nothing left. I'm done. I am destitute. I'm impoverished, God. I need you to show up. Listen, if you've never found yourself in that place, if you've never found yourself in that place, you may not really understand what it means to be a Christian. Because the storyline of the Bible is not, 
is not that God bends down to those who are powerful and put together, but that God bends down to those who are poor and needy. See, let me get real practical this morning. What what does your prayer life look like right now? Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18 about two men who come to the altar to pray. And they come to the altar and they come before God and one man comes, the Pharisee comes before God and what does he do? He runs down a list of all the reasons why God should hear his prayers. And he thanks God that he's not like all of those people whom God must need to bend down a little bit lower to get to. God, I think I'm not like them. I'm not like the extortioners or the murderers or the adulterers or the tax collectors. God, I I thank you that I'm not like them. There's a tax collector that's standing standing a little bit further back from him. He he won't draw as close. He doesn't feel like he can. And he's standing back and he's beating his breast. And what is he saying? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the one who went home that day justified was not the man who ran down his resume before God, but the one who threw himself at the feet of God. See, what does your prayer life look like right now? And some of you, whether it be publicly or privately, you may never roll out your resume and say, God, you must hear me because I performed all these things. But in our heart, do you feel that? I feel that pull all the time. And I have to constantly remind myself that when I come before God, I'm not coming to run down my resume, but to throw myself at his mercy. For I am poor and needy. Are you? You're not a billionaire, but you're not bent, you're kind of like spiritual middle class. Is that how you see yourself? So God must bend down. We must acknowledge our need. Third, third, we have to learn to seek joy. This part of what it is to live in a relationship with this great, majestic, mighty, powerful God. Learn to seek joy in him and not from him. Do you know know the difference? To seek joy in him and not from him. See, when you seek joy in him, you're seeking your gladness, your joy, that it, just, just in, in who he is and what he does and the fact that he is God and that you get to know him personally, that he bends down and listens to you, that you have communion and fellowship with him. There's a relationship here between you and him in which you can bring your needs before him and that he listens, joy in him, joy from him is God dispensing certain things for you to have and enjoy in this life. And there are many folks in the American church who have never shifted from seeking joy from God to seeking joy in God. Listen to what he says in verse 4. David, I love the fact, here's David running for his life. And what does he say? Does he get before God and say, God, God, I need you to change my circumstances. God, I need you to eradicate this, get me out of this situation, God. Look what he says in verse 4. I love what he says. He comes before God and he says, God, would you gladden the soul of your servant for to you, O Lord, do I lift my soul. Would you gladden my soul, God? He didn't say, God, change my situation. He says, gladden my soul in the midst of the situation, God, that I might find joy in you and not just from you. 
Listen, earlier this week, uh, I was, was at, uh, doing some shopping with my kids, back to school stuff. And so we were buying some clothes and buying some shoes. Because um, my kids are in a stage right now where it's like shoes last for about two weeks before they all get tore up and they're just holes everywhere and their toes are sticking out. And all that kind of fun stuff. And so we were buying some shoes for back to school and a little bit of clothes as well for them. Because they outgrow stuff like every three months it seems like. Uh, my son's growing like a weed right now. And so we were doing some back-to-school shopping, and we were at the checkout register of one of the local stores, and we're standing there. And, of course, man, the marketers know exactly where to place stuff when you're waiting to check out, don't they? Like, does anybody else feel that? And so there's these, you know, little, little bags of toys, and they're only like five bucks, right, or seven bucks. So there's these little things, there's little trinkets that are sitting there. And, of course, my kids are like, like pulling everything off the shelf, going, Daddy, can I have this? 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 And they keep asking over and over and over. And there's a part of me that feels a little bit of compassion for them because I remember being that kid. <laughs> I remember being in those shoes. And so, but when I tell them, no, we're, we're, we, look, we, we just spent right, X amount of dollars on clothes and shoes for you to go back to school, right? And then we're going out to dinner with some friends tonight and you guys are going to enjoy that. And we're going to have a fun time and we're getting ready for this. And, um, you know, we're still kind of in the process of waiting for um, your mom's new job to kind of kick in and get a paycheck from that. And so we're kind of trying to be as lean as we can right now. And my son's just like, ah, ah, but ah, I, can't, I can't believe, right? <laughs> it's just $5. Y'all are laughing like you've been there. <laughs> and so we, 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 and so I'm like, I don't know, how, like reason doesn't work in these moments. So we, I, I just kind of weather the storm and we walk out of the store and we get in the truck and we begin to have this conversation and we begin to talk about just the reality of his heart. And I said, buddy, I want you to know that, that stuff won't make you happy. Stuff can't make you happy. I said, well, let me, let me take that back. I said, it will make you happy for a short, short-lived happiness. Okay? And I said, think about it. If I had bought you those pack of Pokemon cards. I'm just going to bear it all, right? Pack of Pokemon cards. Would that have made you happy? Yeah. For how long? Well, it's like little nine-year-old wheels, almost nine-year-old wheels turning. Well, I guess for probably about a couple of days. Yeah, probably so. And then after that wore off, you would, what would happen? I'd want something else. I was like, you know what? I get that, man. I do. I said, you know what, when daddy's driving down the road and he sees somebody who pulls up next to him, they're towing a big 21-foot brand-new bass boat that sparkles and shines with a 250-horsepower engine on the back and the front deck's loaded with fishing rods and tackle and gear. You know what daddy wants? He wants a new boat. And when daddy pulls in the parking lot and he sees, right, all these brand-new vehicles when we drive by the dealership and he goes, hey, mine's got 130000 and that, that one's that's slick right there. I'm getting my old chains walking around, looking at all the stuff. I said, Daddy, Daddy feels that pull as well. But you know what? If Daddy got that new boat or he got that new truck, you know how long that would make Daddy happy for? Probably a couple of months. Every time I got in it, I'd be able to, you know, the, the new car smell is still there. I said, but you know what? Eventually that's going to go away. You know what Daddy's going to want? 
He's going to want something else. And at that point, he's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it, was, it was one of those just kind of dis- discipling conversations with him where I was able to kind of show him how poor and needy I was for God's grace and talk to him about how poor and needy he was for it as well. And we had this, this, this interchange. And, of course, Sarah's over in the other seat, and she's like, you know, she's like the amen corner. <laughs> yeah, Caleb, yeah, Caleb. That's a whole other story. And so, <laughs> but there's, there's so, many, so many times in my own life and in your life, what we're doing is we're seeking joy from God and not in him. We want God to give us all these things that we think are going to make us happy, but at the end of the day, when, the, when that newness wears off, what happens? We're still left with that same gaping void and that ache in our soul, needing something to fill it. See, David says, God, gladden my soul. Why? Because I'm lifting it to you. I'm lifting it to you, God. In prayer, I'm coming before you on my knees. I'm lifting my soul to you. I need you to do a work of grace in my heart, God, that I cannot do for myself. I can't do it. Listen, I can gladden my soul for a moment with a new toy or with a new trip, a new vacation. Right, booking travel or buying tools or buying, I gladden my soul. I know how to gladden my soul for a moment. I don't know how to gladden my soul for a lifetime. I can't gladden my soul for a lifetime. I can gladden my soul by consuming certain things in this world, but I cannot gladden my soul in the midst of desperation by enjoying contentment without God's grace invading my heart. And so David says, God, would you listen? You who are so big, would you come down low and listen to me? I'm poor. I need you desperately. And I need you to do a work in here of grace that would not make me dependent any longer on trying to gladden my own soul. Man, I I want that for myself and I want that for you. So when the joy in God begins to bubble over in your life, that the enemy's advances, you'd no longer be entangled by shiny stuff. That I'd no longer be entangled by shiny stuff. Now I want to close with this. And we're, we're, not, we're going to come back to the psalm next week because there's just a lot there. I'm trying to learn. And so, I'm going to close with this. Some of you are sitting there right now, and you're like, man, I, 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 okay, God is big, and he's mighty, and he's powerful. And that God wants to come down and bend his ear to the lowly. And God wants to gladden my soul with him, not things just that he would give, but with him. But how can I be sure that he will? Because I have made a royal mess of my life. By lifting my soul to other things, seeking joy. By elevating myself and kind of living as spiritual middle class people. Like, you, how, how do you know God would incline his ear to me? How do you know he would really listen? Because I, man, listen, if I, if I ran down my resume for you right now, you wouldn't be so sure. 
preacher, that God would actually turn his ear to me and listen. But I want to assure you this morning that he will, that if you will come to him, he will, because, and here's why. David says the basis of the reason I'm coming to you to ask you to turn your ear to me is because I'm poor and needy. So there's some, there's some grounds in David for his petition to God. But I want you to notice the bigger ground in the text. David grounds his petition to God, his prayer to God. God, show up in my life, not just in the fact that he is poor and needy, but the fact that God is loyal and loving. Look at what he says in verse five. In verse five, David writes these words. He says, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Now that word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed which speaks of God's faithfulness, his loyal love for his covenant people. And it shows up all throughout the Old Testament. In other words, it's speaking of the fact that God is loyally loving to you, not based on how you perform, but based on his character and his promise. And so I was trying to think of ways to, to, to sear that into your minds this morning. How do you know God's gonna show up? How do you know God is going to answer? How do you know he's gonna turn his ear towards you? And the way that you know is because God has shown and demonstrated his loyal love to you. His loyal love to you. You guys ever seen the movie Taken? Liam Neeson, the man with a particular set of skills that he's acquired over the course of a long career. Ever seen that movie? Right? You know how the story kind of runs down. You got this, you know, Liam Neeson is this ex-CIA operative and he's, um, you know, he's got this daughter who's now coming of age and she wants to go travel abroad. And what she really wants to do is go follow you 2 around their European tour. But she tells her dad that she's going over to France to vacation with her best friend's uh, uh, family. And so she gets on the plane, she flies overseas, and she gets there, she, like the lying daughter, right, gets on the plane, flies over to France, goes to try to follow you two around, and what happens? She gets abducted by people who want to destroy her life and sell her into the sex trafficking industry. And she calls her dad when she realizes what's transpiring and she sees people kidnapping her friend in the room across the way. And she calls her dad and she's crying on the phone and her dad talks her through everything that she needs to do and she crawls under the bed. I just remember this vivid scene in the movie and she's talking to her dad whenever the men come and grab her ankles and pull her out. And she screams. And then the kidnapper picks up the phone and he runs into that little spill about what he's gonna do and all that. And the kidnapper says, good luck. And so he hops a plane, flies over to France, like kills dude, four dudes in the airport before he even like gets out of, the, out of the airport. He goes over, investigates the scene, right? He shows up, he goes over and talks to one of his buddies who was a detective there in France. And he didn't realize at first that he was kind of in on the plot of funneling all these young girls into the sex trafficking in the industry. So he goes and investigate this other dude, tortures him, gets information out of him, goes back over like, I think stabs or shoots his friend's wife like to get information out of him. Like he's just chasing down people and there's just carnage everywhere as he's fighting to rescue his daughter. And he figures out where she's going to be sold. And so he shows up at the auction and he tries to force the hand of those who are trying to sell her. That goes south. And so he just kind of wipes all those dudes out. He figures out where she's now been taken and she's on this yacht out in the ocean. And so he jumps on like a boat or a jet ski. I don't remember. He kind of rolls out there, jumps up on board and he goes in and he finds his daughter being held at knife to her throat. And the dude starts to try and negotiate with him. He just goes, 
right, right in the head. Dude falls over. And what does he do? Does he stand back to his daughter and he goes, I told you so. I knew this was going to happen. I can't believe you lied to me. What does he do? He runs to his daughter and he embraces her in his arms and he pulls her close and they weep. Don't you see the loyal love of the father has chased you down over centuries. You, the lying child, the disob like if you're under 12 and here, like finding Nemo, same story, okay? <laughs> chased you down and rescued you from those who would want to bind you and destroy you. His loyal and steadfast love has pursued you. Charles Spurgeon called him the hound of heaven that he sniffed you out and he brought you back. And so if he would go through all of that to demonstrate his loyal love. See, in in both those movies, the story, the father risks his life to save his child. But listen, in the script of the Bible, God not only risks his life to save you, he gives it to save you. He gives it, he lays it down freely. He comes to seek and save the lost and gather them under his arms and bring them back to himself. Not so that he can thump you on the back of the head and say, I told you so, but so that he can embrace you and shower you with his love. And he's done so in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression and demonstration of God's loyal love, of his steadfast covenant faithfulness and the keeping of his promise to his people. How can you be sure he's going to incline his ear to you if you call out to him? Because he's promised that he would. And he's shown that in his loyal love. What you and I need is a picture of the great bigness of God who draws close to listen to the needs of his, of his kids. Even when they can only muster a whisper. Because he is loyal to the end. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we come today overwhelmed by the sense of your grace and the beauty of your goodness. God, we know that we are poor and needy. God, help us to come to terms with that and to confess that. God, there's nothing that we can do to climb our way to you, God, but we must ask you to come down to where we are. Father, for those of us in the room this morning who are hurting, maybe we've experienced some church hurt in our lives because people have treated us as if they are middle class and we are the poor spiritually. God, I pray that you would heal that and that you would help all of us find our joy in you and not just from you. That you would help us to find contentment in our circumstances and not just long for change of them. And God, may you give us the faith to believe that you will do that because you've shown how faithful and loyal you are. As we celebrate that this morning, God, would you show up? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.